the book of Titus this morning. And uh, if you're here with a, today with us without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just flag them and they'll get one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage today. So you can not only hear God's Word, but see it with your own eyes. And, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible uh, a gift to you today. Just a reminder as well, on Sunday, uh, on the, this evening, we will have as a, we normally do with a Christmas Eve service, we'll have a one-hour communion service, an extended time of worship and um, some devotional thoughts related to the Lord's Supper, partaking of the Lord's Supper, and that'll be tonight, six o'clock, each of you are invited, whole family, everybody will come into the room uh, tonight at six o'clock. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, and to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humanity to all men. You say, boy, where is Christmas here? He better find it quick. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. This is a faithful saying, that these, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable uh, to men. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a listening God. We're thankful that our worship and our praise and our prayers are meaningful to you. We could never hope to presume that on our own. We only know that because you have told us that and we're humbled by it. And so we have now offered up our praise and worship to you. We have spoken to you, Lord, in gratitude for your love, and we pray now as we turn to your word that you would speak to us. And we pray, Lord, for this work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives to hear your voice through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In this portion of the Apostle Paul's letter to uh, Titus, he instructs Titus to remind the Christians in Crete and us what is to be our attitude and our conduct toward government, and then also what is to be our attitude and our conduct toward our fellow man and, uh, uh, and fellow citizens. And specifically, as he talks here, toward our fellow human beings for us as Christians who are not yet Christians. 
And then Paul gives us the reasons for our conducting ourselves in this way, which he introduces with the word for in verse 3. And in doing so, he provides us with one of the greatest descriptions and uh, explanations and uh, uh, explorations, really, of salvation in the entire body. And he immerses us into the single great theme of Christmas, and that is the theme and the reality of Savior. And as that angel communicated to the shepherds on the uh, night of Jesus' birth and near the city of Bethlehem, Luke chapter 2, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be all to, peop- to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And in this passage in Titus, the uh, Apostle Paul mentions Savior in one form or another uh, fully three times in these short, uh, six short verses. Savior, verse 4. He saved us, verse 5. Savior, verse 6. And he's driving home the point that Savior is so central uh, to Jesus Christ and so central to his birth that to celebrate Christmas without having made him my Savior, without having received his salvation, is to miss the meaning of Christmas entirely. Paul begins his description and really his celebration of Jesus as Savior with a declaration of our need for salvation, uh, an explanation for why we need saving, why we need a Savior there in verse 3 as he reminds us of our form, uh, former sinful uh, condition. And here in the context here, he reminds us as Christians that our formerly sinful condition, uh, he, as he reminds us of it, in order that we would not view our fellow man and fellow human beings who remain unsaved. And as a result of that, uh, very much dominated and invested in, in selfism and, and in, in sin. But even so, we are not to view them with contempt, but that we're to view them with compassion and not to spend our Christian lives throwing kind of thunderbolts at the unsaved world, but to remember that at one time we were every bit as much the sinner as they are, and we were once every bit as blind and lost as they are now. And the reminder of our past here is intended to supply each of us as Christians with ample motivation for dealing with people that don't know the Lord yet with understanding and with compassion and with humility. I won't detail all of the sins that Paul lists here in verse 3. I don't think the intent is that we break each one of them down. It certainly isn't an exhaustive list of uh, the sins that uh, men and women, all of us and mankind are capable of uh, committing here. But Paul lists enough sins here in verse 3 in order to communicate that every person in the world is a sinner. And that every person in the world is a sinner not only in the eyes of God, but also in the eyes of our fellow man. Now some people have a problem with being called a sinner. 
And there can be a lot of reasons for that. Sometimes people don't uh, like to be designated a sinner uh, out of uh, a kind of a carnal uh, pride. But I think that most often it's because people don't understand uh, what uh, God's definition is, the Bible's definition, and the Bible, Bible's use of the word sinner. And so a person can think that a sinner is someone who is an extraordinarily bad human being, a notorious sinner, someone who is a sinner far greater than the average sinner in, uh, in, in life. And that's not how the Bible defines it. Uh, to sin is to miss the mark. And the word sin comes from a Greek word, hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. It's in an archery term from the ancient world. You would take the bow in your hand, you would take the arrow with it, aim at the target, and if you missed the bull's eye, you committed uh, hamartia. You missed the mark, you missed the bull's eye. It was to sin, and that's how it's defined. Well, that raises the question of, okay, well then, what is the mark that I was aiming at and I missed? And the mark is perfection. To sin is to be less than perfect. And I don't think that any of us could argue against God's assessment of us, each of us as being sinners, when we realize that that is the the standard related to lives and for God to come to that assessment of us as sinners. Well, someone might then say, okay, uh, I'm a sinner. What are the consequences of missing the mark? What are the consequences of being less than perfect and uh, in my doing and in my thinking and in my speaking and in my motivations in life and so forth? What are the consequences of, of being a sinner? The Bible teaches that my sin has cut me off from a relationship with God. There's a lot of problems with that. But the biggest problem with that is that we have been created for a relationship with God. We have been cut off from the single great thing that we have been created for, the reason for our creation, and being separated from that relationship and and living life separated from that relationship, then I will live a life in which nothing in life will ultimately satisfy, nothing in life will make any ultimate sense. And Paul declares, as he writes to the church in Rome, for all have sinned, but he didn't stop there. He said, all have sinned and, and he doesn't list a whole bunch of consequences, though there are a whole bunch of consequences. He lists the great consequence of our sin, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the glory of that relationship with him. And concerning all of this, Jesus taught something that when you read it the first time as you're reading the Bible, it just seems counterintuitive. You would think he got something backwards in his mind and and, uh, it it got recorded, but he really didn't mean it uh, until we stop and really think about it for a moment and say, ah, now I see what he was saying. Not only was it not a mistake, but it was a very important thing that he was communicating. 
And Jesus taught in John chapter 16 verses concerning the work of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension into heaven. He told the disciples, and when he, that is the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We would expect Jesus to declare that the work of the Holy Spirit coming into the world in his fullness, following Jesus' ascension uh, into heaven, would be to convict the world of sin and of their unrighteousness. But he doesn't do that. He says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. In other words, not, uh, of not only the fact that we are sinners, but that a perfect righteousness is required in order to get into heaven. But again, we have a problem here because the Bible declares each of us to be unrighteous, to be sinners, that is to be completely, as a result, unqualified to get into heaven on the basis of our own righteousness or our own good works. And so what's the solution to this? The Bible declares that when we put our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, that Jesus' perfect righteousness, right onness, rightness is put to our uh, account so that now every time God looks at us, He does not see our unrighteousness and, and, but and in terms of our suitability for heaven, he doesn't see our unrighteousness. He only sees the perfect righteousness of Christ covering me. Paul wrote Romans chapter 4, verse 5, but to him who does not work for salvation, but believes on him, that is Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, this righteousness. And the reason that this is so important to understand is that I will never be open to God's salvation until I give up on all attempts to save myself on the basis of my human effort. And, and, uh, and I will not give up on my own human efforts to save myself until I'm told that the righteousness that is required in order to enter into heaven is perfection. And thus the Holy Spirit is come to inform us that the required righteousness for entrance into heaven is perfection so that we will cease endeavoring to establish it on our uh, own, and then put our faith in Christ for the required righteousness. Now, while some people have a problem with being identified as a sinner, and that uh, God is so holy that but one sin in our lives uh, disqualifies us for a relationship with Him, that never bothers me. It never did bother me. What would have bothered me would have been if I came to the end of my search for meaning, purpose, truth, salvation, God in life, 
At the end of that search, if I had come to God and found out that He was just like me, a sinner, fallen, and to discover that God is merely just a stronger and wiser version of us, that would have been disheartening to me. Not the news that He's holy and that my sin has disqualified me for the relationship uh, to, uh, to occur and that, that my sin uh, has to be dealt with in a meaningful way in order for my relationship with God to occur. And I, I think that would, have, that would have certainly been the disheartening thing uh, to me to find out at the end of my search that God was exactly that, as somebody put it in a song a few years ago, a slob like one of us. And thankfully, that's not the God we found. And that's not the God that any sinner finds and the God of the Bible. We find a good God and we find a holy God, even if His goodness and His holiness requires our salvation to know Him. Well, thankfully, neither the Apostle Paul or the Holy Spirit Spirit leave us in verse 3 with just a declaration and a description of our need for salvation. He then proceeds on to describe the salvation God has provided to us in verses 4 through 8. And you notice he begins that section with the word but. And so the word but is a conjunction. It indicates that now I'm going to talk about something that is in stark contrast to what it is that we've just been talking about. So the bad news of our sin isn't the only news. Now we come to the good news concerning salvation up against all of that bad news. And in contrast to all of that bad news, God's assessment accurate assessment of us as sinners and the judgment that our sin deserves. And here's the salvation that God has provided for us in the face of all of that. And first in verse 4, Paul tells us that our salvation has its origin in the kindness and the love of God the Father for us. The kindness and the love of God, not just for the whole world, true of the whole world, but true for every single individual in the world. To be loved and to love is one of the greatest things a person can ever experience in life. When Karen and I were newly married, we didn't have much materially speaking. And we didn't realize it. That's the way love is, isn't it? And one thing that we did have is we had a stereo turntable and we had a vinyl album of Nat King Cole's greatest hits. And so we would sing along to Unforgettable, uh, Too Young, Mona Lisa, Walking My Baby Back Home, A Blossom Fell, and then we would dance uh, to Dance Ballerina Dance. But of all the wonderful lyrics on that album, the one that impacted me the most was a line from Nature Boy. And the line is, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. 
And the stanza goes, and then one day, a magic day, he passed my way. And while we spoke of many things, fools and kings, this he said to me, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. You think about how inexhaustible the subject of love is in our world. Think about the uncountable number of love songs that have been written, not in human history, but in your lifetime worldwide. And more will be written today, and more will be written tomorrow, and all the way to the end of the age. And it speaks to our longing for it. It speaks to our search for it, our need for it in our lives. I remember a line from a James Taylor song, an album that I got later, Carolina on My Mind is the song. And in this regard, he wrote, and it just jumped out at me in, in, uh, in, in the powerful way that things like this do related to music. And he wrote, there ain't no doubt in no one's mind that love's the finest thing around. There ain't no doubt in no one's mind that love's the finest thing around. You know, Paul McCartney, he's uh, the uh, extraordinaire of writer of, uh, of love songs, and uh, he wrote of our continual longing for love songs. He said, you'd think that people would have had enough of li- uh, silly love songs. I don't know if he wrote it because he was getting a little bit defensive over people saying that all he could write was silly love songs. But write the song he did, and the, and the lyric resonated. You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around me and I see it isn't so. Oh no, and so forth. I'll spare you going beyond that. And I think what a wonderful thing it is in life to one day learn that we are loved by God. What a tremendous, tremendous truth. And how do we know He loves us? How can we be sure? Well, the the Holy Spirit tells us, Romans 5, but God demonstrates His own love. He didn't write a song about it, as wonderful as that is. He didn't just talk about it. He demonstrated His love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And He didn't begin to love us as human beings, when we became Christians, or when He cleaned us up a little bit, made us more lovable than we were. He loved us long before that. He loved us even when we're going down all of these alleyways in life, whether literal or in our minds. He loved us through all of the mistakes, all of the ups and downs, all of the thoughts that He could see, all of the everything. He loved us long before we came to Him. And the Greek word that Paul uses here for love, interestingly enough, it's not agape, but phileo. And the word speaks of a fond affection, the affection of a friend. And so his salvation wasn't born solely out of agape, doing what is best for the other uh, person, but out of a genuine affection for us. 
And God loves us on that level too. And when he saw the massive price that each of us would pay for the catastrophe of that fall of Adam and Eve and that ancient Garden of Eden, the introduction of sin and all of its consequences into the human condition and into our own lives and saw it long before it even occurred, he provided the means for our salvation. But it required the birth and the death and the burial and the resurrection of his son. But God's plan for our salvation was birthed out of that love. Second, we're told in verse 5 that this salvation is entirely a gift from God, that we would have, could have no hope of ever earning our salvation before God through our own righteousness or our own human effort or good works. Because if we could do that, then salvation would not be a gift, it could be a wage. It would be something we would earn. And salvation is a gift and solely a gift from God to us. If, and we could not earn it if we wanted to because every sinner is forever disqualified from being a, a savior related to sin in the same way that a drowning man cannot save himself or another drowning man. Some people have a problem with the deity of, of Jesus. That is that uh, he is divine, that He is God, that He is the Son of God, and that He is God uh, the Son. And, uh, and, and so they're willing to accept Him as a great man, as a teacher, a great example, a great miracle worker, all of these kind of things, but not willing to accept His deity. And the problem with that is that our salvation required a Savior to be both fully human and fully God, as mysterious as that is, uh, uh, all at, at once, uh, just as this Old Testament scriptures declared that the Savior would be. The necessity of Jesus' humanity is very, very simple in that without becoming a man as God, he could not die. He could not die on the cross to provide the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. And the necessity of his deity is equally important because it is because Jesus is divine that he is also sinless. And the sinlessness of Jesus is essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot be the savior of sinners. He would need a Savior himself, again in the same way that a drowning man cannot save another drowning man. And it was Jesus' sinlessness that qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, to be, as John the baptizer put it, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You take away his sinlessness and you'd be left with a Savior that can't save anyone. And so it's no mistake that Jesus came into the world exactly uh, as he uh, did and was exactly who he declared uh, himself to be. You can never tinker with Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture and human history and improve him. We can only mar him. And the perfection that he is 
in terms of the salvation that we needed. Our salvation needed to be accomplished by the only one who could accomplish it, that's God Himself, and then be made a gift to us, which is exactly what God has done for us. You notice as well, this passage, as I mentioned, filled with the words Savior uh, and saved, and that might raise the question in some of our minds, okay, I, I accept God's assessment of me as a sinner. I've been less than perfect. Who could argue with that? But what exactly do I need to be saved from? And it's a good question. And first and foremost, we need to be saved from the wages of sin, from the righteous and eternal judgment of God that our sin deserves, that our sin has earned. Paul wrote concerning this in Romans chapter 5, much more than having been justified by his, that is Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Jesus taught concerning this, Matthew chapter 10, and do not fear him who, uh, who kills the body and, uh, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. John the Baptist, he declared in John chapter 3, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. But of the power of this salvation to deliver us from this judgment, Paul wrote of the future portion of every person that makes Jesus our own Savior. He wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, and then here it is, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus taught in this regard in Revelation chapter 2, and he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This salvation also saves us from uh, being crushed by the uh, great uh, uh, weight of our guilt in life, the guilt of our sin. Now, I don't know if any of you, don't shout out, have any sins in your life that you are especially um, ashamed of, feel in a special uh, guilt over. I certainly do. The things that I can look back and just cringe that I treated people or what I said or what I did. And it's a wonderful thing that happens in a person's life that no matter what is back there, no matter how much there is to be ashamed of and to feel guilty over, that this salvation frees us from the guilt of our sin with the completeness of its forgiveness. And what a gift that is. I think you can go crazy on just guilt alone in life. This salvation saves us from living an empty life, a frustrating life, a life without purpose and without any meaning. 
because since we've been created by God for relationship with God, until we're engaged in that relationship with Him, there will always be that sense that there is something missing from my life. That there's an emptiness in my, in, in my uh, life. There's something more to life than what I've experienced. And it's the most important thing, the very thing that we've been created for, and that is a relationship with God. You look at the culture that we live in, and the culture is so broken. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about morally and spiritually. And you see the, at the epidemic levels, the breaking of people's minds and their emotions the amount of emotional and mental instability, the amount uh, of that that is being dealt with medically and sometimes and often necessarily, but the amount of, of self-medicating that goes on. But of course you're going to have this. To the degree that you remove God from a culture and the ultimate meaning and purpose in life that can only be found in Him. You are absolutely going to doom people to live a life without meaning, without purpose. And our minds and our hearts are meant to be anchored in something that's sure, in something that is safe, and in a God and in a relationship with God that keeps them safe and blesses them. This salvation provides us with a victory over death, and with it, it delivers us from what the Bible describes as the bondage of the fear of death, which only Jesus can do as is evidenced in his, his resurrection. As the Apostle Paul wrote, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there is this thing that is called the bondage of the fear of death. As the writer of the book of Hebrews describes it, and how many people, not all of them, but how many people are on treadmills every day? How many people are eating this way, eating that way? I'm not putting it down in its entirely, but to do it as an effort to escape death or to run from death or to do it out of a fear of death, it cannot be outrun. It is an enemy of every human being and must be conquered. If we can't conquer it, it must be conquered on our behalf. And Jesus has conquered death on our behalf, and it's a part of the salvation he provides to us. Well, Paul goes on to then instruct us concerning how this salvation occurs in a human life in verses 5 and 6. It occurs when I put my trust in Jesus. I put, I trust it for my salvation in his death, burial, and resurrection. And I trust in those things as God's pro provision for the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sins even as Jesus told us to, and told a very religious man to. In John 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, no one is excluded, but whosoever believes in Him, that is this Son, should not perish but have everlasting life. And when a person does that, notice what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He tells us that we experience the washing of regeneration. Washing speaks of cleansing. It speaks of the forgiveness and the cleansing of the defilement of our past sin. He talks about regeneration. The word literally means again birth, speaking of being born again, of experiencing a spiritual birth in our lives. And when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, there's a spiritual birth that occurs immediately. It's referred to as being born again. Why would I need to be born again? What is this born again? Well, we've already been born physically, but in order to enter into a relationship with God, we need a spiritual birth for that to occur. And that spiritual birth occurs when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and He brings an entirely new nature with Him into our lives and gives us the capacity for that relationship with God. Then He tells us further, we experience the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters into our lives, He indwells our lives, and He introduces a quality of life going forward. In, in this bringing a desire to live a life like Christ, giving us the power to do so, and then He leads us into a spiritual, a physical, an emotional, and a mental quality of life we have never known before, and we would never otherwise know. And at the moment of salvation, verse 7 Paul tells us that we are then justified, and this speaks of the fact that God not only forgives our sins, but additionally, God then chooses to forget our sins. Imagine that. Imagine that. God spoke through Isaiah chapter 43, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The writer of the book of Hebrews wrote of of God in this regard, Hebrews chapter 8, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And here you have a forgiveness that is so complete that the only way to make us realize how complete it is is to say that God doesn't remember it. The idea is that God does not hold our sin against us. That once a sin has been forgiven by God, He will never bring it up to us again. That sin is settled eternally. No Christian, the devil may do it, someone else may do it, We may do it to ourselves, but not one Christian in the history of Christianity has ever had God throw one of our past sins in our face that He has forgiven. You have never experienced that, not once in your life. That is the greatness of His forgiveness toward us.
Sometimes in life, one person will forgive another person, and they'll bury the hatchet, so to speak, but they bury the hatchet with a handle conveniently sticking out uh, of, of the ground. So the next time that the person messes up, they can take and grab that hatchet and then wave it in their face. It's kind of like the husband who said to his wife during one argument, every time we argue, you get historical. God never gets historical with us concerning our sin. And that's a hallelujah in our lives. And an easy way to remember this word justification is to realize it means exactly what, if you, if you kind of sound it out, it means just as if we'd never sinned. And then verse 7, at the moment of our salvation, we became, Paul says, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is, we possess the absolute assurance of everlasting life and that our everlasting life will be spent in the glory of the God who loves us and saves us and the one that we love. And then finally in verse 8, our salvation also allows us to live life in the here and now as God intends and to live a life that blesses God which is his own blessing, and to live a life that is a blessing to our fellow man. I would have been completely satisfied if God had merely provided a salvation that provided me with the forgiveness of sins. Where God would say, here is a Savior and here is a salvation in which your sins are forgiven but you are doomed for the remainder of your three score and ten to live the life that you've always lived, dominated by self, dominated by sin, the world, the flesh, all of these things. But one day you'll get into heaven, and I'm a forgiving God, but you remain in bondage to your old ways and your old nature. I couldn't complain because beggars can't be choosers in this regard, but that's not the salvation He provided or the Savior. He forgives our past. He gives us the confidence and the hope of heaven in the future. And in the present now, He gives us the ability to live a life entirely different from the one that we once lived. Again, providing us with the will to do and the power uh, to do that. God has thought of everything in this salvation. And when you see something like Paul as he details it here and he describes the salvation, you realize that this is something only God could know about us. Only our Creator could know us so well and our needs so well as to provide so, so perfect a match in the salvation that He's given to us. This salvation, not some haphazard attempt to address our needs. It's not a product of the federal government or of man, but it is well thought out, it is meticulous, and it is perfect. And central to all of it, this remarkable gift of salvation is the phrase that Paul makes central to the entire passage, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you have never ever trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, 
or never even known these things about Christmas, about His birth, about salvation, about uh, God, I deliver His offer to you on His authority as a part of the Great Commission. I extend His offer of this gift of salvation to you on His behalf. He loves you. No one loves you like He loves you. Not your mom, not your dad, not your anybody. He loves you. He has seen your need and He has provided it in His Son so that you would merely know these things No. So that you would understand these things, recognize the need, understand his provision, and then make all of it your own this morning by trusting in Jesus for that salvation. And if you've never done that, there's going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God here today. If you're a Christian here this morning, in writing all of this, the Apostle Paul, and he writes it to Christians, he takes us on this wonderful walk down memory lane in terms of our salvation and our Savior. He makes mention of God's kindness and His love, of mercy, righteousness, saved, washing, renewing, justified, heirs, everlasting life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here clearly for Paul, there is the consciousness that this salvation uh, that, uh, that has been provided to us and provided into human history on the, uh, in, uh, on the day of Jesus' birth, which is celebrated all over the world today, and that for the Christian that there is this consciousness of all that He has done in providing that Savior. And to just remind us that because each of these things are a part of our lives as Christians, that Christ has and God has turned every day into a Christmas day. Every day is Christmas for the Christian. Because these things are ours today. They will be ours tomorrow. They will be ours the day after Christmas. And they will be ours forever. I don't care what anybody else thinks of you in the world or what you're going to get or not get for Christmas. If somebody comes up and backs a dump truck up to your house, and it's full of coal, and empties it into your living room. No matter whose bad list you might be on, these things never change. Every day is Christmas for us. And it is only that Savior that has brought us into that quality of life. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer.
Father, thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, always working to bring us to your Son in our unsaved condition. Thank you for how you work to cause us to drop all of our excuses and all of our justifications and to become humble enough at some regard to be willing to sincerely listen and, and to seriously, seriously consider your estimation of us, of our need, your assessment of us, and to realize, Lord, our need for salvation, and then to sit and to look and to see what it is that you've done for us. And Father, I, as, I, as we look at these things today, I can't see anything you've missed. Who could know us this way except you? You have overwhelmed our past. You have overwhelmed our future. And you have overwhelmed our present in this salvation. Thank you, Lord, for how rich you have made us in our Savior. Thank you for making every day Christmas in our lives. Thank you that no matter what tomorrow holds or the day after or the week after that or years from now, if you should tarry, that these things never change. These immeasurably priceless things, even one of them never changes, let alone all of them. Thank you for your love for us. Father, thank you for the sacrifice that was involved in sending your Son for us. Jesus, thank you that you came and were faithful to the call to be a Savior and to provide this salvation in human history. And we thank you this morning in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.